where we broadcast our pirate signaler back into the matrix. Escapingthecave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network. Thank you, com- comrade. Lock, I got him. No. <laughs> Howdy, Tonsilla Files, and welcome to another. After two months, you get two in a week. Huh? Another episode of Escaping the Cave at Tonsilla X-Pod, ChristopherMedia.net, EscapingTheCave.com, as my beautiful robot voice told you in the beginning. Thank you ever so much for clicking in, and oh, by the way, fuck Twitter. I've had an interesting week. It's actually been a little longer than a week. I've been lurking in some podcasting groups on Facebook. Stay tuned. Oh. Oh, you are some spammy and slimy mofos, man. I highly suspect there's an episode coming. Not today. (laughs) So what I've got on tap for you today is the conclusion to the session that I recorded the other night. It uh, wound up being pretty long. (laughs) And as I said in the other show, I wanted to sort of experiment along with chopping these up just a little bit, make them a little shorter, see how it goes, maybe get uh, one or two topics per episode instead of having these hour, hour and a half long episodes. I'm not sure how that's going to go, to be perfectly frank with you, but, you know, I've been gone for two months, and (laughs) it's a good time to try things out. And what I've got lined up is sort of an offshoot of a conversation I had with my old travel buddy, Chris, Friar Chris, the guy who had the hostel down in the Andes Mountains. He was here uh, last week, beginning of last week. Uh, Today's January 15th, 2020, by the way. And as I said in the other show, he and I have excellent conversations. We can sit for hours and hours and hours and just talk. Nothing else going on. Really good conversations. Essentially, he is the only guy on this planet And I'm not being hyperbolic when I say this. He's the only guy on this planet that actually speaks my language. And I dare say, I will presume to say, I'm pretty much the same thing to him. So he comes in, I guess, on a Sunday night. We stay up till 3 or 4 in the morning talking. Go to bed, get up at 11 o'clock the next morning, and continue talking all the way until he has to leave to catch his train the next night at 9 o'clock. One of the conversations we had... Uh, surrounded the survival instinct, feeling alive. He and I are both about the same age. We're going through similar things. He's, he's a, a few years younger than me, so he's not quite to the point I am when it comes to things like aging and the power plant sort of starting to diminish and fade. Motivation, enthusiasm. Just the urge to do things. It starts to dwindle when you get to a certain age as a man. If you're a woman and you've got things going on, you speak for yourself. I'm going to speak as as a man here because that's what I am. But that does happen. I know this happens. I've heard a lot of people talk about it. A lot of guys don't like to talk about these kind of things. But little things I picked up here and there and a few other very specific conversations that I've had with people, it is a thing. I'm starting to experience this now. And so we, we got to talking about that and, and what it is that we miss, right? Me specifically, it's just enthusiasm and this energy, this drive to just attack life, 
talked a lot about my travel days in the in the previous episode and one of the things that I had at that point in time was just this urge to get up and go now a lot of the things that I did if I were to go try to replicate them today which is never a good idea but if I were it sounds exhausting I know a lot of you dudes I know you understand completely what I'm talking about it's like uh yeah but the couch is soft and I have a nice microphone <laughs> Why would I do that? But it's the sense of feeling alive. It's the sense of having every part of your entire being activated, ready to go, and wanting that and just, right? And I've tied that in. I call that the fountain of youth. That is, I think, the key to being young. If you can maintain that, you are going to stay young, at least in your mind. But what is it about that? And eventually the conversation turned to this uh, Dostoevsky thing that I had uh, read in Notes from the Underground, where he talks about how utopia will fail because we will get bored. We... Parts of the society, at least vast swaths, I I would say the species collectively, if you put us all in a utopian state, collectively, we would sabotage it. Dostoevsky gets into that in Notes of the Underground. And I wholeheartedly agree with it. Because we get bored, and I think it's the survival instinct. I think it's gone dormant. I will get into explaining and getting into that a little more in depth here in a few minutes. But he started talking about, Chris now, started talking about his time down in Peru. There was a fire. All right, now he's up in the Andes Mountains, 12,000 feet, way away from town. There's a little indigenous village not far away, but they can't do anything. They don't have a fire department. In those communities, in that part of the world and others, you have to take care of your problems yourselves. If there's a fire on the mountain, do you got to put it out yourself, or you know what? The farms burn. Nobody's coming to your rescue. Well, they had a fire. I think he said it was near the inn, which was next door to him. He was holding a class down there, this living change class that he has. I think it's based on leadership and uh, eco-sustainability, stuff like that, whatever. Anyway, there were these students there, young kids, uh, early 20s, college students. He gathers a bunch of them up, and they run down the road to help put this fire out before it really damages anything. And something incredibly interesting happened. I wasn't there, but I totally get it. The egos and the agendas of all of the people involved in putting this fire out in this crisis situation melted away. All that mattered was putting out the damn fire. I think Noel Harari has talked about how, and probably through evolution, throughout community building over eons, eons, hundreds and thousands of years, that we have figured out that in a crisis situation, everybody has their own strengths, everybody has their own weaknesses, some people are better leaders than other people, and when you get into a crisis situation... Those traits don't need to be talked about and sorted out. The strongest leader intuitively takes over and starts dictating instructions. 
the other people intuitively, it's almost like an alpha dog situation, I guess, but they intuitively understand that, yeah, this guy is the right guy to do this. I shall follow his instructions. I shall be submissive to him, at least for right now, because he has these leadership traits that we need to deal with this crisis right now. Screw the ego, put it away. Other people who are stronger, he's talking about the fire thing, you know, people who are strong enough to carry water or, uh, you know, aren't afraid to go into the flames to put out the fire, did it. They just did it. People who, he used the example of a woman, it's not a sexist thing, it's not a stereotype, but a girl who was down there was more concerned with making sure people were safe. She's a caring person, a nurturing person. So she took that role to make sure that nobody was hurt. And it turned into something of a beehive where everybody did what they were supposed to do, what, they, what their strengths dictated. Not their ego, not their social standing, but their innate strengths to deal with that situation in that moment. They were, and I think this, I'm not going to say they, he didn't say they. I'll speak from what he told me about how he interpreted that experience later on. He described it as being extremely cool. He felt alive. He felt good. And I attributed this to the survival instinct, that something very, very primal was activated automatically in the moment. It didn't require any thought. It's something that is built into us as we've evolved in a society dealing with a life-threatening crisis or any kind of threatening crisis. Everything comes alive. The entire mind and body is activated and aimed in the proper direction, collectively coordinated to take care of the situation. This Harari put forth, I think in Sapiens, is an evolutionary child. Either he or Jonathan Haidt had talked about this at relative length. I think that's what it is. I think there's something in the psyche, the collective psyche, the human psyche, the sapiens psyche that automatically activates. And I think that is one of the things that makes us feel alive. And there are times, and I'll get into this in the episode as well, where we manufacture that. We go out seeking that. And I think as guys, as men, that when we get to a certain age, it gets harder and harder and harder to motivate ourselves to manufacture that in our, in our own lives, in our own daily existence. That's probably for another show. He had another example about this. I won't go as, as in-depth to it, but I, I did mention on another podcast, I do believe, uh, that he had gotten, um, he had been robbed. Armed robbers came up there in the middle of the night no, you know, neighbors or phones next door. You're not going to call 911, 12,000 foot up the Andes Mountains in the Cordillera Blanca Mountains. No. Yeah, they had to take care of it. Armed gunmen literally came in and robbed the place. And he talked about how these, these robbers were dolts. They had guns. He's not even 100% sure they were loaded. But he had thoughts about where this primal urge, and if you know Chris, Chris isn't a primal kind of guy. <laughs> but he had this primal urge where he, he was tempted. Oh, he had an opportunity where he could have turned around, blasted one of these guys in the head, taken the gun, and used it against him or the other gunman. 
That's the primal thing, right? And after the gunman left, they took off down the road. He gets on the phone to call the neighboring village so they can block the road. They, they literally lynch thieves like this down there. Another story altogether. This is such a... I wish he would have sat down at the microphone for just this. <laughs> anyway, he gets on the phone uh, trying to get the road blocked, and then he goes down and checks on the inn where I was talking about the fire. This is probably a 10-minute walk. He and another guy take a back path through the little woods thing they've got there and are crawling on their stomachs like commandos making sure that there weren't any indications that the gunman had gone to rob their neighbors. Again, this is primal activation. This is if the, uh, We would consider this probably, maybe, I don't know if we, I'm not going to say that as a blanket statement, but many of us would consider that irrational and foolhardy. They didn't. In retrospect, when he thinks back on it now, or was thinking back on it last week, he's like, yeah, that felt really good. I really enjoyed that. <clears throat> Alive. I think you're channeling the same thing that skydivers channel. Mountain climbers, adventure travelers. And I think to a small extent, as I will show you in this podcast, uh, I think we are sort of craving that and manufacturing that sort of primal need for a challenge to fight and battle a crisis. I think we are doing that as a society. I think we're incredibly bored. And if I'm right, and if Dostoevsky's right, utopia is doomed. So that's the first part of the podcast. The second one, I'm going to go back to some of the prediction stuff that I mentioned in the first episode. A little more politics, talking about division and how I see uh, the 2020s coming. That's going to be right around, I guess, maybe 40 minutes into the podcast, and we'll take up the rest of it. So, hey, I even mentioned Cassini. The Saturn probe and Huygens, aren't I cosmopolitan? Some solo stuff by a guy I met traveling down in uh, Central and South America a few years back. His name's Paul Vernon, English guy. <laughs> One of the funniest dudes I have ever met. We went, and probably shouldn't be saying this out loud, but I will. There's this thing in a uh, town in Colombia, southern Colombia. I forget the name of the town. It's uh, slipping my mind right now. Uh, San Augustine. That's it. But they had this thing that we kept hearing about. You guys going to San Augustine? You going to do the special tour, man? You going to do the special tour? We're like, what the hell's a special tour? Oh, what is this town? Southern Columbia. How special can it be? <laughs> we started hearing about it in Medellin. And Medellin has a pretty uh, healthy Pablo Escobar-based tourist industry. So on our way to San Augustine, we started hearing about the special tour, came to find out that it was basically a guy who billed himself, portrayed himself as Pablo Escobar's old chemist, the guy who made Pablo Escobar's uh, cocaine. And they had a tour put together. Kept hearing about it. He wasn't hiding it. 
Despite the fact it was highly illegal, he was encouraging people to talk about it, take pictures, shoot video, as long as it didn't have his face there. Uh, where you could go to this little town, somebody would find you eventually, asking you if you wanted to take the special tour. And if you took the special tour, you could go to this really sketchy house on the outskirts of town, a roundabout way. They would pick you up in a spot. They would drive like to the other end of town, go all the way back, come back around, take a back way into this house. You walk in the front door of this dingy little Colombian home. And the first thing that happens, you walk into this house and there's a woman sitting by herself at a table. If you've seen the movie Scarface, I want you to think of the hotel room scene. They walk in, you know, and there's this woman laying on the bed. That's what this woman reminded me of. She was putting off this kind of vibe, right? And she's just looking at you like a knife sitting on the table. She didn't have to say a word. It was like, yeah, all right, gringo, fuck around. You've seen Scarface, right? I don't think I've ever told this story outside of my friends. Eh, certainly not publicly. Anyway, so here we are. We, we've gone through all this. We've given them our $50. $50 per person. I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, by this point, we pretty much accepted that if we're going to die, <laughs> we're going to die. And there's not much we can do about it at this point, so we may as well just run with it. We talked about this later on. We all came to this same conclusion. It's really weird. No, you just go with it, right? It's like you're on the plane. You might as well enjoy it while it's crashing into the sea. Enjoy the ride, because you know what? If you're going to die, you're going to die. Anyway, turned out fine. Uh, but uh, the entire process of taking the coca leaves, adding the chemicals. I mean, you make your own cocaine from beginning to end in this dingy little house, this dingy little kitchen. With this guy portraying himself as Pablo Escobar's former chemist. I have no idea if that's a true story or not. It could very well, very well be bullshit. I don't care. He sold the experience very, 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 very well. And a lot of people, a lot of people took this tour, man. This guy was raking in money. He made $150 off of us that day. There was three of us. To make this cocaine and then take it with us. I think personal use cocaine, I think, uh, is legal in Colombia. I don't think, <laughs> I know, that production is not. I don't even think coca leaves are legal in Colombia like they are in Peru. Uh, but that was so cool. And yes, I partook. I've done cocaine. I can count on this hand how many times I'm holding up five fingers for you folks on the podcast. I'm doing a video, by the way. A YouTube channel. We'll get to that some other time. Anyway, I can count on that number of fingers right there. How many times I've done cocaine in my life? Most of those three uh, were in my 20s while living in Detroit. And I like to tell the story that I uh, went out one night with some friends and I'm driving up the Lodge Freeway in Detroit on coke, feeling like I was invincible, like I was Superman. Right? And I knew at that moment, that very moment, I had enough sense left in my head somehow. I was like, Todd, that's what I call myself as Todd, usually. Like, you know, you can't do this. If you do this again, this is going to be a problem for you. You like this entirely too much. Never bothered with it again until we went to uh, Columbia that time. And that was just the experience. It's like I had this little baggie of cocaine I can do anytime I want. I made this. This is my craft. Mm. 
we all made this together. It's like, oh, now we can do it together. Yay. <laughs> so we spent about a day and a half <clears throat> snorting this stuff at this hostel outside of this uh, little town. And we're progressively getting more irritable and more irritable and more irritable. It's like we had this great little triumvirate that uh, met in Salento, and we've had this great time for probably a week at this point. And at the end of the second day, it's like we're at each other's throats. You can see the progression of how this stuff starts to just jack with your head. Like, you are so on edge. It's like, it, it, be, it quickly became time for us to, to part ways. I gave him the rest of what I had. <laughs> Hopped on the bus, went back up toward Bogota. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, was on my way home. Not before too long. But it was one of the coolest experiences. I, I don't think I would do it again. But it's like, it's like hopping the train when I was out hitchhiking. You know, it's one of those things that you have this opportunity to do it. You're going to have one opportunity in your life to take advantage of this, to find out what it's like to just have this unique experience. And you have a choice to make. Yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah, it's risky. Probably not going to end well for me if I get caught. A little gringo me in a Colombian prison. That'll be great. But it's like... I got to do this. I got to try this. I have got to have this experience. When I get old and I'm sitting in some, you know, nursing home or beneath a bridge, if I'm homeless, ha, 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 I want to be able to think back to myself and be, you know what, Todd, you did okay. Yeah, things suck now. You're going to die soon enough. But, you know, you did hop that train. You did all that hitchhiking. And you took the, the boat from the Panama Canal into Columbia and found your way into this house in this little two-bit town in the south heading toward the Amazon, making cocaine with a guy who claimed, and I chose to believe, that he was Pablo Escobar's chemist. I always have that. That's one of the things about life, man. I don't like to preach about this stuff too much. I've, I've tried to talk about this stuff on my podcast before, and I don't think they come across very well. But these are the little things in life. These opportunities, these chances to live your life, to seize the moment, carpe diem, Carp DM, however you say it, seize the day that if you do it and you experience it and you survive it, <laughs> they really add texture to uh, your memories. And I'm so glad I did that. I cannot imagine not having that experience sort of in my back pocket. You know, I could have died hopping that freight train out in Oregon. Could have fallen off that thing. But I felt alive while I was doing it, and I've got the memory of it. And I think this all ties in. You know, Friar Chris, <clears throat> my old travel buddy, was in town uh, last week. And initially, I thought maybe we would sit down and do a podcast. You know, I've got this new mic. I've got some other stuff. I put a, put a lot of work into this uh, little studio here over the last couple of months. I've been planning to come back, believe me. Anyway, he's in town. Last time he was here, we sat down and recorded these marathon podcasts talking about our travel days. And I was kind of hoping that maybe uh, we'd sit down here at this, uh, in the studio now and we'd sort of catch up and do a podcast. But he and I, the conversations we have, they don't need to be recorded. They're for us. And this time it just didn't feel right. I mean, the stuff we talked about would have interested you, guaranteed. But some of it was also really personal about how, you know, the, as, as traveling, old traveling beings, entities, how getting older that changes how the power plant sort of starts to power down. And if you're not 
of a certain age, you don't understand that yet. It's not going to make any sense to you. But if you are of that age, you do understand what happens. And you start craving and it's, it's almost like a yearning for just feeling alive and having the energy to pursue being alive. And that starts to dwindle when you get past a certain age as a man. I don't know if it's testosterone. I don't know what it is. But it's motivation, it's energy, it's a lot of different things that start to change as you age. And thinking back on this, thinking back to San Augustine, thinking back to the train hop, places like Slab City and Nicaragua, Honduras. Those moments when you have thrown caution to the wind, you know this could end poorly for you. Your senses sharpen. You feel alive. Your, I think, I've mentioned this before perhaps, I think this is the old dormant survival instinct. Reactivating. We're not alive right now. If you think about this, as human beings, as men, as an entity or a being or a species that evolved in a survival situation, we have something in our DNA that desperately needs survival. It needs to fight, I think, for survival. Fight for something. It needs that stimulus. I think that's the old dormant uh, survival instinct. And I've referred to this uh, Dostoevsky thing in old podcasts, talking about notes from the underground. He has a, uh, a piece in there that, uh, where he starts talking about utopia and how utopia will fail. It's guaranteed to fail in Dostoevsky's view and in mine because people need a sense of purpose. They need to feel like they're fighting for something. They need to feel like they are in a battle of some kind for something. To reactivate, at least superficially, maybe artificially reactivate that survival instinct that is so ingrained in each and every one of us via evolution. It's there. And if you, I don't want to criticize people's lives. <laughs> I don't. I really don't. Because this is the culture we live in. We're all susceptible. I'm in this cage of a room. I'm in this cage of an apartment after being out and doing all this traveling uh, over you know, a certain period of time. I'm susceptible to it as well. This is how life is structured now. It's safe. What do we really, 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 really have to fight for? What do we really have in our lives right now? that completely activates that survival instinct and fills us with adrenaline and just ugh, makes us feel like we are living. We try to simulate that. A lot of people try to simulate. I had a conversation with my girlfriend's uh, dad over um, Christmas. Why do people go climb mountains? Why do people do this thing where they're going down rapids and they're putting themselves in? I understand that completely. He acted like he didn't. And maybe he never understood this, but I understand it perfectly. Because you need to feel like you are in the situation, like something is, you are in danger. And you've got to survive somehow. There's something, I think, in the, especially men's minds. I crave the adrenaline, maybe it's dopamine, maybe it's just a simple egocentric sense of strength. I don't know what it is. Exactly. But I do believe it's tied to the survival instinct. And I think beyond just men, I think that as human beings, culturally and as a society, 
I think we're seeking that. I think a lot of what we're seeing culturally and socially right now, I think we're bored. I think we're bored shitless. I think things have gotten so good and so easy and we are so complacent and so comfortable that we are doing, I think, what Dostoevsky was talking about people would do when utopia, if it was magically farted out of somebody's butt and the bubble city happened, people would rebel against it because they would just be so fucking bored. What is there to build? What is there to fight for? What sense of purpose do you have other than waking up, eating fucking, and going to sleep? What is it that activates your sense of purpose, your sense of existence, your meaning? What would that be? That's why it's going to fail. And when you get too close to that border, I think that line, I think the survival instinct manufactures, concocts, things that are wrong, or maybe sabotages and makes those things go wrong so you have something to fight for. I really do. And thinking, you know, looking back on things right now, I'm not saying things are great. I'm not saying that everything that people are concocting are completely, or eh, concocting is a bad word. I'm not saying that everything people are saying is wrong isn't. I think there are things, I think there's basis to it. But I wonder, just wondering, I'm playing the philosopher, the philosopher podcaster here, philosopher Zilla. I wonder if they're blown out of proportion simply to create something, some sort of cultural and social human adventure, something to fight for, something to build, something to fix. I wonder. I felt this, man. I have felt this. I know the difference. It was a, a really huge draw to being out on the road. It's like there's, I used to talk about this, uh, this really healthy, nervous anxiety that when I was getting ready to take a trip, I, I, I talk about uh, the, this Devil's Tower trip that I took in 2009, a fantastic trip, right? But it was bait. Devil's Tower was bait. To get me there, I had to go to Denver and I had to uh, hop on a Greyhound, get dropped off in the middle of nowhere in this little town called Gillette, Wyoming. I think it's Gillette. And that was it. There's nothing out there, man. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to get dropped off in the middle of why fucking oming? The reptilian brain kicks in and you start concocting these horror stories, these internal narratives about what could happen. Well, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Right? And this nervous energy just sort of builds inside of you. And you're like, you're, you're borderline scared. But it's not fear. It's... Something is going to challenge you. Like, you're going to have to make this work. You're going to have to take it as it comes. And you're going to have to survive it. You're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to improvise. You're going to have to use your skills, both social, you know, dealing with people, physical, because it's Wyoming, or wherever, really. You're going to have to use your wits. You're going to be tested as a man. In the general sense, women can do this too. But you're going to be tested as a man. And it makes you wonder. It makes you, it's something really, really primal that kicks in. And there's a difference between that, what I call this healthy anxiety and fear and terror. 
And I really, right now, I didn't intend to do any of this. I've got other stuff here. I always do this, don't I? But there's a really fine line that I can't quite delineate between this healthy anxiety and just paralyzing fear. But this healthy anxiety is the essence, I think, of both youth. If you can channel it, if you've still got confidence enough in your abilities, in your health, in your strength, in your stamina, in your perseverance, you still feel strong enough to tackle and whatever challenge comes. If you've still got that, then this healthy anxiety is incredibly, incredibly addicting. Because once you get out there, man, once I got off that bus in Gillette, for example, or I got off the the boat going from Panama to uh, Colombia, there's this no feeling, no drug in the world that I've ever done, including cocaine, can match that feeling, that addictive feeling where every synapse in your brain just, okay, I'm, I'm awake, I'm ready, come on. Every nerve in your body is ready for action. You are alive. And it's, you're only alive because you are being challenged. It's a survival situation as best we can replicate it in today's society without going, <laughs> well, there's other stories there, without doing a Chris McCandless and <laughs> going to Alaska and starving to death in a bus. Or maybe, you know, jumping into the, into the wilds of Africa to be chased by a rhino. Another guy I talked about when I was having this conversation with my girlfriend's dad, was this guy that I met uh, on that same trip. And uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. This was on the second trip. Second trip to South America, first trip to Peru. Anyway, I spent a month in Cusco. In the Andes, I took a bus uh, from Juarez to Lima and then Lima to Cusco. And I spent nearly a month in Cusco. I almost didn't leave there. Uh, Cusco's, (coughs) wow. I didn't care about Machu Picchu. Just Cusco's incredible. Anyway. Met a guy who I think was Israeli, and he had taken a trip into the Amazon. I think he'd gone into Leticia. He'd taken a boat down the Amazon, gotten off in a local village, which you talk about isolation. I've seen these places. No roads. The only way in is the river. He got out, and he had paid a local somebody to teach him how to survive in the Amazon by himself. He took a class, he did maybe did some ayahuasca or something like that, but these were basic survival skills. And the graduating class, the graduating, I don't know, session, was that he had to go out into the Amazon jungle alone and survive for like a week. Balls the size of which I can imagine they're not going to fit in my pants. (laughs) No way. Went through the class, did everything he was supposed to do. He gets uh, dropped off or something, or they leave. And he's out doing his, he's, he's taking a shower or a bath, I guess, in the river or something. He's drying himself off. Turns around and almost steps on uh, what are those snakes called? Oh, I should have should have thought about this beforehand. Um, Fertilance. You know what a Fertilance is? That's like the most venomous snake in the Western Hemisphere. Are all over there in Central and South America. He almost stepped on one, and this snake, this Fertilance, was ready to strike. He was nowhere near any sort of medical treatment whatsoever. If that snake got him, he was probably dead. That's how venomous these snakes are. You know what he did? 
This guy's standing there naked, facing off with a fair to lance. He killed it. He figured out how to kill it. One of the deadliest snakes in the friggin' world. He's out there with, he didn't have a gun. I don't think he had a machete. He may have. I don't think so. I seem to remember sticks. But the other thing I remember was he had just gotten out of the river. And when he told this story, I'm standing there naked and there's a fair to lance. This guy killed a fair to lance in the Amazon jungle standing there naked. And he told this story. It wasn't like, oh my God, there was a fair to lance. It's like, yeah, you know, killed this fucker. I killed this fair to lance naked in the Amazon. You could tell the way he told that story. That it was one of those moments, he's younger than me, but it was one of those moments where, like I said, everything just, focus. And every nerve and synapse in your body activates. And you never, never in your life or your ordinary life will you ever be able to replicate that. So I think, instinctively, instinctually, I think we know that. I think we're seeking that in our minds. Just on a primal level. Like I said, I've been to Central and South America. I've seen poverty. I've seen oppression. I've seen racism. <laughs> Mestizo against indigenous folks racism. I've seen it the other way. I've seen it directed at me. And whenever I come back here, especially after going to Honduras, Nicaragua, I would appreciate just how good we have it because I have seen how bad other people have it. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've smelled it with my nose. I've heard it with my own ears. (laughs) I've taken dumps in their toilets. We have it pretty good. We have it really, really good. And I think that part of the problem with us as a Western culture, part of the species, in this part of the world, is that we have it maybe too good. And we know it. And we are incredibly bored. Incredibly bored. We don't have anything to do except go to work and buy TVs and cars and microphones. We don't have anything to do with our wit other than this. This is what I'm doing with my wit these days. I'm recording a video on my fancy-ass computer into my fancy-ass microphone. And I'm going to upload it to complete strangers because why? What else am I going to do? I want you to think about this. As the election season rolls on and you start hearing these grand you know, proclamations about how socialist utopia is coming and how these candidates are going to, they're going to save you with it. They're going to rescue society with it. I want, to, want you to listen to how they talk about this country. How they're trying to tell you how things are so bad. When I think, in my opinion, and I think it's a pretty solid one, that things are really, really good. They are so good that we will listen to people tell us how bad they are just so we can convince ourselves they're that bad, just to convince and fool ourselves into thinking we have some sense of purpose and something to fight for. I honestly believe that. I think that's a big part of this. And people talk about, you know, well, we need a big cataclysm or a catastrophe to hit us. That may be. Absent a California earthquake, absent an asteroid strike, maybe the power grid going out for two years, 
Absent any of that, we may, may be subconsciously trying to manufacture that ourselves. Maybe the tribalism we're talking about, or that I talk about, that we're seeing, this partitioning of ourselves off into groups, it's getting a lot of help from places like Facebook. Absolutely. And there is a for-profit aspect to this. People that are perpetuating it, selling it to us. <laughs> Soil the green is people. They're selling our own bullshit back to us. But could they be doing that if we didn't want it? Rationally speaking, rationally speaking, none of this makes any sense. Looking around this country, I want you to go look in your living room. Look in your garage or in your driveway. Rationally speaking, it shouldn't be this way. But it is. Why? I think that's part of it. I really do. Talked about uh, 2020. Sort of my prediction for it. I think I think this division, I think the uh, propaganda wars, the perception wars, as I've called them now. I think things are going to get steadily worse this year. I think Donald Trump's going to be reelected, but I don't really think it matters. I think that if Trump's reelected, as I expect him to be, I could be wrong. But if he is reelected, I expect that it won't matter. Because even when he's reelected, what we've seen happen with the uh, Green Tea Party the last couple of years in response to him is just going to accelerate. His second term is going to look exactly like his first term in terms of radicalization, in terms of the resistance. They're going to look for every reason they can possibly find uh, to impeach him, to have him removed from office again. That's going to alienate the other half of the, the country, his supporters, people that see that for what it is. The division and the divide just going to widen. And then we'll go through another cycle of radicalization on the left. We'll probably go through a little cycle, too, of radicalization on the right in response to the radicalization on the left. <laughs> Reactionary, binary, bilateral radicalization, I think is what I called it. I'll let that a number of times. I think we'll, yeah, we'll see that if Trump's reelected. And if he's not, say uh, Bernie or uh, Joe Biden's elected. Let's just play the game. Let's say it's one of them. What do you think is going to happen? Do you expect that the people who support Donald Trump are going to be like, oh, well, he won. I guess we were wrong. We will support Bernie now. Hmm. Is that how this is going to work? Really? Or do you think that in response to Biden, Bernie, whoever, more so Bernie than Biden, but I don't know how much more so, do you suppose... They're going to do the same thing I just mentioned the left doing if Trump is reelected. Do you suppose that the radicalization we've seen on the right that led to Donald Trump isn't only going to get worse? It can get a lot worse. Do you think this is the ultimate? Do you think it cannot go any further? You're mistaken. You never could imagine this 10 years ago. You thought George Bush was the Antichrist during the aughts. Did you ever imagine a Donald Trump? What do you think you're going to be saying in 10 years if this continues? And it will. Either way, there is no kumbaya moment coming. 
I know a lot of you like to think so. I call you pinkerists. <laughs> or you have the, the utopian vision of uh, some, you know, some sort of come-together moment that doesn't include some sort of a catastrophe. Or we're finally going to just unify, reunify, and come together as Americans. Oh, that sounds nice. It's not going to happen. And if you think it is, I want you to show me your work. I've told you this a hundred times. I don't want to hear, oh, you're just being a fatalist. I want you to show me the equation that comes out in the end where X equals unity. If you can show that to me, I'm open to it. I would love to be able to walk this back. I would love to be able to come on this podcast and say, you know what? I have seen a path forward that doesn't include self-cannibalization. I would love to see it. To me, this election doesn't mean anything. There's still going to be gridlock in Congress. You're still not going to get anything done. The one party is going to basically legislatively cock block the other, as we've seen for the last two terms, or two administrations even. All the you know pie-in-the-sky promises from uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders basically equate to build the wall, and Mexico's going to pay for it. Free health care? How is that going to happen? How is that anything beyond rhetoric? In this environment, how is that ever going to come to fruition? Answer that question for me, please. How do you even account for the possibility? Free health care, free education, socialize, <laughs> whatever. Gridlock. Gridlock, division, Hatred, the continuing, continuing dissemination of agitation propaganda within our own borders and from outside of our own borders. The only thing that's going to happen, the only thing that's going to change is the hatred level. The fever is going to grow. It has to. I've talked about this with so many people. I told Chris a number of times while he was here last week. That I don't like this. I don't like saying this. I don't like repeating this. I have checked this through every filter I can think of. Am I just being a cynic? Am I just being a fatalist? Am I just being, you know, a dab Debbie donor? I've tried to change. I cannot see any other path forward. And he agreed with me. Now, we agree or disagree a little bit on the process, I think. But he sees the same damn thing. And he lives out in... Liberal Massachusetts. He lives in Amherst. Oof. He's getting a, a completely different perspective than I am here in West Michigan. But he gets it. And he thinks that the division's going to hit. He thinks that it's going to hit a uh, sort of a critical mass point, as I do. And a lot of blood's going to be shed. Because we're not going to get the asteroid. We're not going to be blessed with an asteroid <laughs> or some sort of a natural cataclysm that's going to smack us in the face and remind us that we're all more alike than we'd like to think we are right now. That isn't going to happen. Most likely, the cataclysm is going to be man-made. We'll manufacture it. We'll go into the streets, into the woods, and instead of shooting furry woodland creatures, we're going to start hunting ourselves eventually. And one of two things is going to happen. 
One of two things is going to happen coming from that. We have an evenly divided country that's going to end up at each other's throats. So, how does that end? One side has to suppress the other. Right? That's how it works when you go to war. Somebody has to win. Right? If you're talking about half the country, even divisions on both sides, the winner, the winner has to suppress the other half of the country. That, my friends, Tonsilla Files, a loyal listener, that is textbook tyranny. It is. You're tyrannizing half the country. I want you to think about something else. I'm going to invoke Germany here. <laughs> it's just easy. It's, just, it's so easy to invoke Nazi Germany. But, I don't know, 1938. If you were an Aryan man or woman in Germany, your life wasn't being affected by the regime. They weren't hunting and persecuting you personally or any of your friends or family. If you were living in Germany unmolested, would you consider yourselves living under tyranny? What if you were a Nazi? What if you supported the administration, the regime? Would you consider yourself living under tyranny? I dare say no. So half of the country here, if this plays out as I'm sort of seeing it, half the country's going to think this is great. It's going to be heaven on earth. Oh, we're on our way to utopia, while the other half that's having to be drug along will literally be living in a tyrannical state because they're going to have to be suppressed or oppressed, however you want to phrase it. One way or the other, it doesn't matter who wins. Half of the country, you just flip the coin over. It's the same thing. That's the best case scenario, man. It's the inevitable scenario. Or is it? The other solution here, or the other possible outcome, may be more likely. And that's if we do descend into some chaos, civil strife, fighting each other, bloodshed, that the state, the state that's in place right now, cracks down on everybody. Like little children having a fit in the front yard. Daddy comes out and whips both their asses, sends them to their room, and leaves them there. That's probably the more likely outcome, don't you think? Do you think that this capitalist society, this, this financial-based society, is going to let the economy and their profits fall into the toilet over intramural squabbles? Really? Do you think that'll happen? I don't. That's the most likely outcome. Either way. And I don't have a timeline for this. I'm not going to give you a timeline. doesn't matter. It could be a year. This could be happening next year, for all I know. It could be happening in 2027. It doesn't matter. But that's how I see this decade playing out. For me personally, this is weird. Personally, I feel optimistic. Which is strange. As a whole, as a culture, as a species, as a global community. Now, by the end of this decade, by the end of the 20s, the 2030s, not optimistic that's going to look uh, anything like utopia. <sighs> or Mayberry, for that matter. And it's really too bad. It is. I, you know, I'll wrap up with this. I never got to any of my stuff again. 
Go figure. I'll wrap up with this. I was watching this thing this morning on the uh, Cassini. You know, the probe that went to Mars. Or no, I'm sorry, uh, Saturn. They uh, There's this thing on Netflix that talks about its uh, final descent. They had to get rid of it. They didn't want it crashing into one of the moons, 60-some-odd moons orbiting Saturn, because there could be uh, microbes from Earth that could contaminate the uh, ecosystem on those planets. And there are ecosystems, by the way. It's weird. They're not biologicals, and I won't get to that. Anyway, as I was watching this, they have pictures in this documentary showing um, images from Saturn and their moons, and particularly Titan. Titan's fascinating. We sent the Huygens, Huygens probe, Huygens, however you say it, uh, Huygens, I think it's called. They attached a probe to Cassini at launch, the uh, European Space Agency, I think, right? because they were so fascinated by this moon. They sent Huygens, and it plunges through the atmosphere, parachutes down, and takes pictures of this moon of Saturn. Right, and they found lakes. They found rivers. It's methane-based. It's like so cold there that methane, which is typically a gas, exists in a liquid state. So they have rain based on meth. Anyway, the pictures were cool. The possibilities of what exists there is just fascinating, and we're never going to see it. We sent a probe there. We're probably not going to get to Mars. We're not going to get to be able to send actual real probes or real people to the outer solar system because we are too busy sitting here squabbling amongst ourselves. That's how we are. Is it Fermi's paradox, Matt? Is that what you were telling me about? That they One of the, one of the philosophies of um, why there haven't been any contact with extraterrestrials, despite mathematically it almost being a certainty that they exist somewhere else in the universe, the reason that we haven't heard from them is that they destroy themselves before they develop the technology to be able to leave their own planet and contact anyone else. I totally understand that philosophy, man. Because to get to the point where you are going to be able to leave your planet far enough or contact another alien civilization somewhere else, you've also got the technology in place to destroy yourself. And if you can't cut through that, if you can't cut through the intramural squabbling, the technology is used sort of like Russian roulette, and eventually it goes off. That's where we're headed. Are you excited? As I like to remind people, I am available for children's parties. Use the promotional code WINTERISHERE. Or it's the people, and you'll get half off. (laughs) Anyway, that's kind of how I see the 2020s going. (laughs) Maybe a little bit longer than that. I really would love to go to Titan. The stuff that they found there, I would love to be able to put a 4K high-definition camera on that moon and see it, and we are not going to get there. It's tragic. It really is. If you have a curious mind at all, that is a tragedy. EscapingCave.com, ChristopherMedia.net for all your podcast needs. Stay tuned. I think I'm going to have a podcasting episode coming up. That could get ugly. Might be like the Woke Flake comedy thing. Thanks for clicking in. Look for a podcast again soon. And uh, till then, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.